Let's bow together for a word of prayer. O God, in a world of clamoring voices and competing claims, we need above all to hear what you have to say. So by your Holy Spirit, will you now open our ears, our hearts, and our minds as we open your word. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. I'm sure that we are all familiar with the term body language. The expression has been coined by students of human behavior because we often communicate far more by our mannerisms than we ever do through our words. For example, the way people sit, even in church, may indicate whether they are interested or bored, while the expression on our faces may suggest either agreement or disapproval, a shrug of the shoulders, or a tap of the foot, a nod of the head, or a wave of the hand, a stifled yawn, a frowning face, or a pointed finger. Such movements all convey a message and they form part of what we describe as body language. In Romans 12, verse 1, we are told that faith in Jesus Christ must be expressed through body language. For Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. Some people suppose that the gospel is focused on something that we call the soul, which can be a a very comfortable thought for those who want a religion that makes few demands. But of what use are redeemed souls unless they are accompanied by yielded bodies? Hence, the apostles' plea. How else, he is saying, how else can our faith be demonstrated unless we use these bodies, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our lips, unless we use our bodies in a manner that is consistent with our profession. The language of faith is primarily body language as every faculty that we possess and every activity we undertake are surrendered to the Lord. And that's partly what Romans chapter 12 is all about. But why? Why should we place our bodies, why place our lives at his disposal? Well, this text would surely indicate that God's mercy deserves no less. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Throughout the first 11 chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul has discussed that very theme, God's mercy, extended to a fallen world through Christ. Perhaps the 
message is summarized best in chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's mercy was revealed in all its costly splendor through the death of his Son on a cross. Here, if you like, was the ultimate body language. Because Jesus suffered on the cross as a flesh and blood human being. That's what the bread and wine of communion declare each time they are placed upon this table. That he was wounded. Wounded in his body for our transgressions. That he was bruised. What was bruised? His body was bruised for our iniquities. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, explained Peter. Hence, the only response which is appropriate is that we in turn would offer our bodies back to him. Therefore, writes Paul, because of what you know and because of what you have personally experienced of God's mercy embodied in Jesus Christ, you are to present your bodies. You are to yield your lives to the risen Savior. On one occasion, a wealthy English family was entertaining friends. It was a a warm day, and the children were playing in an outdoor swimming pool. However, one of the visiting youngsters went out of his depth and began to drown. The gardener heard screams from the boy. He jumped into the water, and he saved the lad. That boy's name was Winston Churchill. His parents asked the gardener what they could do to repay him, and the man declined any reward until they were absolutely insistent. At last he confessed his life's ambition. He wanted his son to go to college someday and train to be a doctor. It was out of the question for a humble gardener at that time. He will go to college, promised the Churchills. We will pay his way. Years and years later, when Sir Winston Churchill was Prime Minister, he became seriously ill with pneumonia. King George gave instructions that the best doctor available should be summoned. His name was Sir Alexander Fleming, the man who pioneered the use of penicillin, and the son of that gardener who had saved a drowning young Winston. When he recovered from his pneumonia, Churchill commented, Rarely has a man owed his life twice to the same person. As Christians, we owe a double debt of gratitude to the Lord. For not only has he blessed us with the gift of life, precious precious gift that it is, he has also redeemed us from the awesome consequences of our sin and our folly and our selfishness and our pride. I'm sure you know that familiar quotation 
from the missionary C.T. Studd, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. The gospel is all about mercy. It's good news of grace. It's about divine love. The gospel isn't a threat. It's, it's a promise. It's not a burden. It's the removal of a burden. Yet such mercy deserves no less than the submission of our lives, so that through the Spirit's work we may, as Paul puts it, become holy and pleasing to him. This morning we observe the Lord's Supper. Everyone who takes the bread and wine will be saying that he or she is a follower of Jesus. That's what the body language of communion is meant to convey. But we can so easily go through the motions, can't we? Someone at the front saying all the right words. Elders distributing the elements with practiced efficiency. People and eating and drinking with reverence. And yet somehow this still fails to get through our defenses. We've no real intention of changing our lives as a result of being here. And even should the Lord himself appear to us in a vision, he isn't going to upset what we plan for tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Shouldn't the words of Matt Redman speak for us all each time we sit at this table and each time we think about Calvary? Once again, I look upon the cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy, and I'm broken inside. So once again, I thank you. Once again, I pour out my life. God's mercy deserves no less. And God's honor requires no less. How did Paul evaluate this wholehearted yielding of our bodies? This, he said, is your spiritual act of worship. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? For when this term worship is used, what immediately springs to mind? What comes into your mind? It comes into mine as well. The services that we attend... Worship, we suppose, is all about singing hymns and saying prayers and hearing sermons and maybe coming to the Lord's table. That's worship. And it can be very interesting how folk perceive this whole business. I read a wee while ago about a minister who received a phone call from a lady on a Monday morning. She had left a pair of gloves in the church and wondered if he might collect them for her. That's what ministers are there for, I suppose. And sure enough, he found the gloves where she had been sitting, but he found something else as well. He found her printed order of service, and beside each item she had marked the exact period of time it occupied. First hymn, three minutes, nine seconds. 
Opening prayer, 4 minutes, 11 seconds. Sermon, 22 minutes, 40 seconds, and so on. You see, apparently for her, worship was not only something which took place in an hour or so on a Sunday morning, but each ingredient of worship should be limited to a certain amount of time. Contrast her begrudging attitude with the following affirmation which comes from an old Jewish source. If my lips could sing as many songs as there are waves in the sea, if my tongue could sing as many hymns as there are ocean billows, if my mouth filled the whole firmament with praise, if my face shone like the sun and moon together, if my hands were to hover in the sky like powerful eagles and my feet ran across mountains as swiftly as the deer, all that would not be enough. O Lord my God, not enough. I am passionate about worship on the Lord's Day. It is truly important and dear to my heart, but it's not enough. It's only a partial expression of our faith. What matters equally? No, what matters far, far more than anything we do within these walls is an obedience to Jesus Christ which is evident beyond these walls. Offer your bodies. Give him your lives, urged Paul. This is your spiritual act of worship. To use a current expression, worship is a 24-7 thing. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Peterson expresses it so well in the message. Romans 12, verse 1. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. God's Old Testament church used various animals in their worship. These were slain and led upon an altar primarily to emphasize that the Lord is worthy of our very best and also that sin ultimately leads to death if it weren't for His grace. Such offerings pointed forward, of course, to the Lamb of God who alone could take away that sin. The Israelites offered dead sacrifices. But now under the new covenant, which has been sealed by the blood of Christ, we are to place these living sacrifices upon the altar. Old Testament worship was located in the temple. And I guess that many Christians today treat the places where they gather as the modern equivalent of that temple. This came home to me when one of the congregations in which I ministered needed to renovate its meeting place. 
On our final Sunday before we moved out to the hall for a couple of the months, one member shook me by the hand at the door and said, well, you'll not be seeing me back, Mr. Hetherington, until we return to the church again. Return to the church. Folks, we are the church. For the New Testament gives us a totally different slant on this whole business. Your body, meaning your literal physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, wrote Paul. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Yes, what we do here is of great consequence. But our worship doesn't begin and end here. The use of our bodies at work, at leisure, at college, at home, out there and in here. All this constitutes worship in the fullest sense as we bear witness to the presence of the Holy Spirit within. Sadly, God often had to rebuke the people of Israel because their moral behavior contradicted what they did in the temple. I hate, I despise your religious feasts, he said in Amos 5. I cannot stand your assemblies. What were they doing wrong? There must have been some doctrinal heresy or heathen practice that had crept into the back door. But no, that wasn't true in this instance. If anything, the temple hierarchy were quite scrupulous about what took place. Yet, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, said the Lord. Yes, everything was being done by the book, which is very important to some folk, provided it is their book. But it wasn't worship. It wasn't acceptable, spiritual, life-changing worship. Because those very same people who were so concerned about dotting every I and crossing every T were practicing deceit and unrighteousness and injustice once the benediction had been pronounced. God forbid that we would ever fall into the same trap of behaving like Christians on a Sunday and like pagans during the rest of the week. Because faith without works is dead. And worship which is divorced from conduct is a total sham. Therefore, I urge you, wrote the apostle, I plead with you, is what he's really saying, in view of God's mercy, because of what is represented on this table, give yourselves completely to him, for this is the true worship that we should offer. In the light of such a plea, what message will our body language convey? when we leave this building 
today.